Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest independent startup community. Inspiring, educating, and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe in partnership with Google for Startups. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators, and game changers from the fastest high-growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes, and grow together. There's no time to wait, so let's begin. This episode is brought to you by 99designs, the global creative platform that makes it easy for you to find and work with amazing graphic designers online. Found it in Melbourne, like that. From logos to websites to packaging and books, 99designs is the go-to creative resource to build your brand on any budget, which is super helpful for entrepreneurs. And right now, our listeners can get a free $99 upgrade on their first design contest. A contest is a great way to get started and find the right designer for a long-term work. You can also book a free design consultation with a brand expert at 99designs to receive personalized design advice over the phone. Their team of design experts has helped thousands of business owners. It's a great way to get the most out of your experience with 99designs. It's all simple. Just go over Head over to 99designs.com slash startupgrind for your upgrade and to sign up for a design consultation today. Fun fact, by the way, our founders Joel and Derek met on 99designs. There's a funny YouTube video promo for 99designs, an old school one, where we are literally in the garage. Check it out. It's worth a watch. Thanks, 99designs. Hey, you all. Chris Jonu back at it again. Startup Grind, Dream Pushes. Hope everyone's staying safe certainly a crazy time and um but i have to tell you i got one advantage right now and that is there's some uh, amazing entrepreneurs sitting at home and i'm getting access to them crazy stories going through coming through over the next few weeks um incredible entrepreneurs today's no different i got elio leone shetty founder of the craftery a new 375 million dollar fund focused on purpose-driven FMCG brands, so doing his good bit for good, and um, his background is nothing short of phenomenal. Everything from being the vice president at RB, um, working on brands that everyone would know: Airwick, Calgon, Deadol, Neurofen, Finish, and Vanish. He sits on the board of AB InBev, the world's largest brewer. You know Anheuser Busch, everyone knows that one. He also sits on the board of the world's largest cocoa manufacturers group. Barry Cullabout. I hope we get the, the finish right on that one. And in the process has also turned Captain Birdseye into an environmental campaigner and was the CEO of, uh, global CEO of uh, EMI record label. Knows some incredible people. So fantastic at transforming brands uh, into forces for good. And that's the premise of the fund. He goes... What I learned was a lot around um, branding, and um, that was a big takeaway for me and just the uh, the insight and psychology um, to his approach on, 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 on branding with these massive brands and how to take them to market and um, have some purpose behind them. Hope you enjoy the interview, and stay safe. Thanks. Elio, thank you, thank you very much for, for joining me. Pleasure. You have quite an interesting background. I hope we can cover uh, uh, much of it in the next, you know, 40, 45 minutes, however, um, however long you give me here. And um, and um, just by way of background, I I um, 
worked in FMCG and innovation myself for many years, so I'm particularly interested in the, in the in the new fund and and you know hearing all your experience and you know um, um, all the fun stuff you've done because I see like you know EMI in there as well. So um, if I could, it was could, a, it was a fun ride. Sorry, <laughs> it was a long fun and and yeah. intense ride. Yes. So if I could go go back a little bit, and I I usually start with the question. Um, you know, was there a mother or father that was an entrepreneur? So my father was an entrepreneur. Um, he was a property developer, but uh, did it in a sort of a, a entrepreneurial way, if you want, in uh, in Rome in the uh, yeah in the sixties and seventies. And and what you were just so you were just around that and and. And, and kind of inspired by that, or did he did he bring you along to kind of learn the the family business? What was that kind of experience like growing up? Um, so a little bit of both. Um, and I was going to add also, my mother was and is um, still alive and is a composer. Right. So the creative juices in the family, um, you know, were running. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, I grew up in, in an environment in which there was a lot of intellectual curiosity and a lot of, uh, you know, searching for solutions and ideas. And I guess that, you know, somehow as you grow up, you absorb some of it. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then, um, you know, moving forward and, and where may I ask where uh, you're taking the call from right now? So I'm taking the call from my home where I'm in self-isolation as about a quarter of the world, if not more by now. Yes. Uh, I have uh, one corner of the house um, that is designed to be my office. Uh, I've been working uh, from here on and off over the last few years. Um, so there are some routines that, if respected, allow me to have a little bit of productivity. And is that, is that London, sorry? That was a question. It is. It is, sorry. It's just outside of London. Oh, brilliant! Brilliant, and and then um, um, so then what? You know what? Um, what was next? What was the education? Was there was there any pressure from your from your dad to you know you know get into property or your mum into like exploring your creative side? How did how did how did your what did your education look like? And um, and tell me some so, of your sorry. Yeah. Um, so from an education perspective, it was in Rome, um, uh, except for a couple of years that um, during my secondary schools around sort of 16, 17 years of age um, was in Switzerland. Uh, but other than that, I grew up in Rome. I did also my uh, university in Rome. I studied economics um, and um, I would say that there was not a pressure to do economics. It's always been sort of my interest uh, in that space. But certainly it fits with the expectations, if you want, of um, my family at the time and, and sort of my uh, environment and friends. I graduated uh, very early for Italian standards, probably uh, among the earliest in, in, uh, in the country. As a matter of fact, I did some studies in uh, uh, sort of tax and corporate um, uh, fiscal uh, called commercialista, which is sort of a bar exam. Um, and then I, then I started to do something that had absolutely nothing to do with what I studied because I received a call from Procter & Gamble uh, saying, you know, whether I wanted to do marketing with them. I had no idea what marketing was. I was like all kind of finance and all of that economics, you know, more numerical stuff. Uh, 
And uh, but I loved the uh, company, the culture, the people. So I said, why not? And then I started a career that took me basically till today um, about learning of consumers and brands, communication, people, attitude, preferences, all kinds of stuff that uh, really spoke to me. And so I basically developed a career which was different than the, the, the major of my studies. Yes, yes, absolutely. And Procter, Procter & Gamble, obviously, you know, a massive business, lots of brands there. So a pretty, pretty good start to the career. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was good fun, and I have to say that also Procter and Gamble at that time just made an acquisition of Richardson Vicks, and the uh, the time um, you know was was very good because there was a lot of uh, um, energy to uh, deal with these new smaller brands um, and to retain some of the entrepreneurial spirit uh, as we were integrating into the larger companies, and uh, there was a hub of people you know that came out of that sort of Rome Procter and Gamble time, which is quite amazing. I mean, the, uh, you know, we were, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 and, you know, one is now the CEO of Estee Lauder, one is the, you know, LVMH, you know, number two, um, you know, there are a number of others that ended up being CEOs and, and CFOs of, you know, very large corporation around the world. So it was, a, it was an interesting hub. <laughs> Absolutely. And and you uh, sounds like you quickly got your head around the you know marketing and think about customers instead of all the um, you know all the finance and uh, economic background that you you, you uh, uh, yeah. got from university. It's a quick yeah, learning I mean, you know, curve, what, I suppose. What, yeah. Well, what, what happened is um, um, if you are so I'm I'm a strong believer that um, if you have the intellectual curiosity and the desire to learn. Um, and you accompany yourself uh, with people or organizations or environments that can provide the content, it's sort of a little bit like where magic happens. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was not as much uh, a learning curve that it was driven by my, um, you know, any particular, I would say, uh, skills or capacity that I had, but it was that Procter at that time was such a great school of consumer obsession, of brand building, of discipline in thinking, of essential, um, uh, defining the essential, um, you know, in, in, in processes and, and, in, and in teams. Um, and I was really young and really, and really uh, willing to, to learn. And so it kind of, you know, it just happened. And so I, I really um, developed um, a sense on understanding what is that link uh, between brands and consumers. Um, you know, at that time I was working on anything between, let's say, laundry detergents and, you know, um, upper respiratory tract, like Vicks Vapor and stuff like that. So, you know, not, nothing nothing that, a, you know, a 20, 21, 22 years old would have personal experience of, so I was not a consumer, um, but at the same time, you you see the sort of deeper link that uh, different type of consumers groups have with the different brands, and so I, I just got, got fascinated by that unspoken um, uh, relation uh, that exists between uh, brands and consumers, and I kind of really just worked on that from from that moment onwards. And and, and then, like, how did the career path kind of um, take off from there? So I, um, 
I started to move internationally uh, in 1990. I have done uh, seven international moves uh, since. Uh, I've done five years with Proctor and then 17 years with Rekid Benkiser. Rekid Benkiser is the company really that kind of we reciprocally formed each other. I, I feel that I have built a couple of the walls and, and certainly the company shaped me as well. Um, so, you know, it's the, the traditional sort of young marketers up to general manager, uh, which I became when I was already with Benkiser, now, now Rekid Benkiser. Um, and I uh, went through sales, uh, you know, general management, I've been responsible of production units and, and supply, um, then got into category management. Uh, I worked in um, 27 categories. Anything between depilatories and uh, you know condoms to laundry detergents, soluble cleaners, and uh, you name it. Um, and uh, those twenty-seven categories really gives you a sense on how different um, are the type of bonds between brands and consumers, but at the same time, how similar um, are the approach with which brands are chosen uh, yeah. in their respective category for for different you know attributes, of course. So, uh, so I became, um, you know, head of uh, regions, uh, head of zones, uh, and then I've run for about eight years the innovation program uh, globally for Rekid Benkiza, uh, heading global marketing, global brands, uh, R&D, media, and the whole innovation, uh, defining a little bit the innovation rules for the, uh, for the company. A period of which I'm very proud because innovation have characterized Rekid Benkiza's successes for, for many years. So, you know, that was very rewarding. Um, and also because it, you know, it allowed me to group around me people with that sort of creative minds that uh, generate a consistent flow of innovation and you keep that energy flowing. And, and it really, um, you know, uh, quite quite a rewarding experience from, from many perspectives. Well, can, can you... Um, can we dig a bit deeper on that one? Because um, I don't want to kind of just, um, you know, we've got lots of entrepreneurs, I suppose, listening. I'd love to just um, hear some of the challenges along the way. And it sounds like, you know, perhaps there was even, you know, this kind of cultural transformation that you were, you know, tackling at the same time. So I'd love to hear, you know, some of the, I guess, some of the the highlights and, and the lowlights and, and um and some of the learning that came from from those things. Sure. So um, I would say the uh, let me let me define what brand is for me, and then I'm gonna you know um, dive in what what you just said. So I think the brand the brands are a set of values that consumers recognize themselves in and wants to project themselves with. Mm -hmm. So brands are not just a product. Brands are much more than a product. It's a function and, a, and, and an emotional reward that allows for people to express the value sets that they uh, define for themselves. If you look at it that way, then the innovation platform in which you uh, grow brands is not anymore going from you know a surface cleaner that now has a you know lemon scent, or you know you add twenty uh, percent cleaning power. Yep. That surface cleaner is an expression of the type of 
person I am. So is it a brand that respects the environment? Is it a brand that favor price over accessibility? Is it a brand that, et cetera, et cetera. And the innovation frame um, can go as wide as uh, the value sets that represent the brand for the consumers, you know, allows. So first of all, one of the reasons why, um, you know, we were so active and uh, worked very well in Rekit Benkiza is that we recognized that. We recognized that there was um, real innovation that we called, you know, new product and uh, renovation, which we called established product uh, development. And those two things are different, but they're both important. And so the, the frame and the path on which we innovated was very wide. I'm saying this because one of the key things in innovation is to not define too small of a box within which to innovate, um, because otherwise you kind of, you know, more perpetuate, uh, you, you repackage rather than, than you know, truly innovate. Um, I would like to make a quick break here to kind of jump to my uh, current role as founder, co-founder of The Craftery. Absolutely. And, uh, and the reason why I'm saying this is that the craftery is, um, is a new thing. Um, it's not a fund. Uh, it's permanent capital. It's a company that has been capitalized with $375 million, effectively by sort of four um, investors uh, that is designed to back the world's boldest <clears throat> challenger brand in consumer goods uh, that are purpose-driven. Yep. We define the purposes um, and the causes, we call it. Uh, there are five, democratizing access, championing self-esteem, um, uh, a, a, you know, sustainable planet, um, and so on. And those brands in CPG that um, uh, deliver on this cause primarily on the, on the front label and that are willing to grow and are willing to have a partner that is operationally experienced and capable to provide more than capital through partnership in operational growth um, is, is who we invest in. And the reason why I wanted to make a jump on this, first is because, of course, that's what I'm <clears throat> very keen and, and focused on, but also because it starts from that definition of brands that I said before. Absolutely. And realize that the, there are, <clears throat> in, um, let's say, the last three to five years, there have been a meaningful shift in the quality and type of brands that are growing. <clears throat> These brands, um, for about a quarter of the population, they might grow up in the future, today we estimate to be about a quarter of the population, are brands that truly care for the consequences of consumption and not for consumption. And that is a massive change. It, it sounds like a little bit of a couple of words flipping, but it is a deep rooted, you know, seismic change in consumer goods. And, and the reason is that if you care for the consequences of consumption, you formulate differently, you sell at a different price, you choose different channels, you engage with consumers on a different, you know, message. <clears throat> and so those brands, the purpose-driven brands that, that, that I referred to, did not have a home because they either had to bootstrap themselves, grow, uh, and find a way um, on their own. Very few can can and successfully do that, you know, to a certain size. Or they had to get capital from people that are frankly unaware of the good rules of CPG because the funds 
that normally do this this kind of you know rounds at tech funds, mm-hmm. finance uh, you know uh, funds, um, which means that they first of all have a period, so five, seven, eight years, and then they have to flip whether they uh, want it or not, which means that sometimes the brand cycle is not respected. But even more importantly, there are people that are used to say, you know, put a couple more data scientists in the room and everything will be fine. Or, you know, the more you lose, the more you gain later. All rules that in CPG are, you know, frankly, nonsense. Mm-hmm. So the, the P&L curve of a CPG company is very different and it has to be structurally designed to grow over time into profitability. Because scale in CPG can give you 5, 10, 15 percent cost, you know, advantage. You will not be, you know, a game changer. So you need to design it from the beginning in a way that structurally grows, you know, with you. That deep knowledge of consumer engagement, trial, awareness, repeat, which now clearly on D2C are called, you know, retention and conversion and all. And, but, you know, conceptually is exactly the same, which is, you know, awareness, trial and repeat. Mm-hmm. Those rules are not in the DNA of these tech funds of Silicon Valley and so on. So those brands either did it themselves or they had to take money from, um, you know, partners that are unaware of how to add value operationally. Or uh, they were snapped by the corporate VC um, and nine out of ten, you know, ends up badly because, you know, kind of you lose your brand identity or you just, you know, uh, fall solo in the priority of the Salesforce uh, list that, that it goes nowhere. So we felt that there was an important space, not just in terms of value creation, which, of course, we, we believe that there is, but in terms of providing an environment for these companies to flourish, flourish and grow. Mm-hmm. And we believe that those brands to go back and close the loop now, are the brands that express a new sets of preference and new sets of values that consumers stated very clearly, which are the results of digital transparency, you know, global connection, information sharing, uh, and a very high awareness of ESG, um, you know, values that particularly in this time, I think everybody is, is acutely aware of how important they are. And these consumers will not buy brands that have for many years favored consumption and ignored the consequences of consumption. So there was an alignment of star between new sets of consumer preference, new way to connect digitally and distribute, um, you know, a, a very significant growth in purpose-driven uh, attention, you know, from a consumer perspective, and brands that did not have an established um, uh, source of capital that was expert and partnering with them for growth. So we created the Craftery with that in mind um, and, uh, you know, trying to bring my personal experience from all these many years of brands as well as my co-founder and partners that we have, you know, recruited uh, to all come with that sort of, you know, operational um, profile uh, that is required for brands to scale. Yeah, absolutely. And and I love it. Um, And I think, you know, if you, if these kind of, Corporate-driven funds take take hold of it, or you know, to your point, technology funds that don't quite get it, um, they're going to lose that that purpose or that identity pretty quickly for the sake of um, you know getting more units through the factory or whatever the case may be. 
Yeah, that's right. It's it's uh, you know the the as 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 it has been for many years. Uh, there is a very different story between uh, truly having a purpose at the front of your label and at the front of your mission, or well, making the claims to kind of um, you know appeal to certain consumers that do not go too deep and satisfy themselves with the claim. Absolutely. Now um, I'm going to jump around a bit too. Uh, can I ask um, how? And, and I'm guessing it's just the fact that you were good with with brands from from a number of uh, you know verticals here. But how did you how do you end up as the CEO of a, of a major record label? Um, you know, I I, I think uh, like <laughs> every person and 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 every entrepreneur, um, you you keep exploring, right? So it might have been because. Um, my mother is a composer. It might have been because um, you know music is such a um, appealing you know space to be working and part of. It might have been because I've been for seventeen years in the company. Uh, I would say I've been ready to be the CEO for three four years, probably before that. Um, and uh, you know the CEO was very successful. as a dear friend of mine. Um, uh, and so, you know, be clearly intended to stay. Uh, and so the combination of this, I got a call, um, from the, from the owner of, of EMI at that time, uh, basically saying, you know, I think that this industry needs discipline and consumer understanding. It is driven only by instinct, um, and there is no insight. So... I think we need a we need a CEO to bring the insight to couple with the you know instinct and see how we can grow the industry at that time was minus ten percent it was you know pretty pretty dire um, and you know see what we can do and so I think that the mandate was super exciting uh, I was ready to take the CEO responsibilities for a global company the content was you know fun. So I say, you know, what the hell? Why not? Absolutely, <laughs> that's, that's as simple as that. Yeah, absolutely. And then you know, obviously, you got this kind of, um, you know, individual, individual brands of, of all the artists, and and so was some of the, you know, um, I guess experience in terms of innovation applied, you know, to artists as brands, or like how what you know what were there some you know some similarities between the. Um, the industries, even though you you know you may not have known you know may or not have known it, or what what was the approach like you know going going into music? Um, so it, it, you know you, you cannot draw a direct line between, of course, a product and music because um, your product is music created by people, and clearly people have their own sort of individual views of things. So you cannot decide for them, right? Mm -hmm. You can uh, work with them at um, how to best optimize uh, the, the fruits of their creation. So is the process that you bring, uh, you know, across. Um, and I think that the probably more relevant, you know, part of this is, um, how do you understand what consumer preferences are and how do you package and distribute whatever product to those preferences? So in FMCG, you can actually design the product. Mm -hmm. In music, media, content, movies, in all of this you know, uh, industry that are in the creative space, you cannot design 
the product because the product is the mind and the heart and the emotions of people that create a piece of music or, or, or direct a movie or you know paint a, you know a painting so that product comes as it is because that's you know the the, the creative process cannot be manipulated and, and it cannot be influenced but once you have that product what you can do is two things one is you can um, get consumers to tell you what they think about it so that you can package it um, in the best way to fit their needs. And that includes literally the type of packaging, i.e. collector items or, you know, non-collector items or, you know, more or less presentation and price and so on and so forth. And you can decide the channel live, you know, uh, in, in, in specialty stores, you know, online, live and so on. And so you, you can uh, optimize the element of the mix that CPGs are very good at, at optimizing. So you end up in different places, of course, in different stores and different ways. But the process through which you decide the packaging and or the price and or the channels is the same. So that's what we did. Uh, we, we created a product development and sort of innovation team, which media industries in general, not just music, do not have. The concept of having an innovation team felt very awkward and lots of people thought that it was crazy. Um, but, you know, it worked very well for us because they were not innovating on the content. They were innovating, on, as I said, on the optimization of the marketing mix um, that, um, uh, you know, that, that could have resulted into consumer preference. And uh, we took sales from minus 10 to plus 2% in a market that was declining uh, minus 10 so it kind of worked. And then, you know, other things went, um, you know, sideways or backwards on the financing and other element of it. And so, um, you know, uh, yeah, so I moved on. And, um, and, and, and just, just one, one quick one on that, you know, is there, you know, you mentioned like the art, the, you know, the artists and, and I, I guess it sounds like, you know, letting them do the things and this is kind of all post, but is there, is there an art to um, empowering, you know, such a diverse range of people? Is there, um, you know, a kind of an innovation lens on, uh, you know, up and coming artists that you, on, on how you choose to, to sign them? You know, what, how, how are you, um, is it business? Is it instinctual, you know, on when it comes to the, the art of it all, of getting like, Picking the right people, I suppose. <laughs> so I, it's 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 probably the longest uh, you know conversation we can have, and I'm sure you don't want to put the uh, you know the, the yeah. podcast on this. I give you a very short answer, which is the belief that golden years um, you know make a difference in music. It's a wrong belief. Uh, there is, of course, um, expertise and intuition that certain people have more than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a number of games. And so just what happens is that those people are the ones that sign up more artists, you know, that are more, you know, in the, in the scene. And so they end up having more guesses, if you want. Um, the, uh, like investors. the magic. Sorry? Kind of like investors. You have a your wide kind of. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There is a little bit of the, you know, spray and pray. And, you know, me personally, I am very much opposed to all of that. I think that that's a wasteful um, approach. That's why the Craftery, it's designed to invest in 
10 companies and not, you know, 100. Uh, we as a team are, you know, operational experts and we partner with these companies. We don't send the analysts or the, you know, um, younger, you know, uh, in the team to sit on the boards. You know, we, we participate ourselves because we think that you better choose, um, you know, your, your, your white elephants, your, your, your big guns and uh, align all of the expertise and operation to make them even bigger um, as they grow and the potential is proven rather than, you know, spray and pray. There is there is a space in the industry from spray and pray, but it cannot be associated with operational experience because the, it just doesn't work. You know, you cannot invest your time and people experience um, on a hundred different uh, tables. Absolutely. So the, these, these are, you know, big bets. I'm looking at, you know, the... Um your bio here with 18 million in um, in Notco, which is a brilliant company. First time I've seen it. Obviously, it was tonight. But um, can you explain how how these you know, and then another 18 million in in Tomboy X. Um, can you explain how these kind of these deals are coming together? And um, yeah, yeah. So um, so from from let's say. From a sourcing perspective, um, we've established our own sort of proprietary way to look at the online market first, which um, mixes uh, different signals, which are sentiment, of course, uh, that are trends. Some of this easily accessible, some others, you know, you know, more proprietary ways to look at growth, whether of traffic or quality of traffic, engagement. And so on and so forth. We have about seven, eight uh, tools that kind of come together into a little bit of a magic box that tells us that if in Melbourne or New York or Paris, um, people are starting to talk particularly of a brand or associating the word with a brand, uh, then it shows what other trends are we interested in and kind of comes together and gives us a flag and say, hey, you know, this is a hot brand now. Nice. This online observation gives us about 3,000 uh, names or brands that fits our criteria uh, or could fit our criteria, to be more precise. Then we complement this with sort of more traditional and physical observation uh, because some of these brands are not online or they're not sufficiently aligned to generate signals. Um, and so we have, you know, the typical sort of, uh, you know, store store observations and fairs and, you know, personal network and, you know, all of the more obvious uh, physical one that is complemented by data as well uh, in terms of Nielsen and, and, and IRI and, and things like that. And so we come together and we have, you know, multiple thousands of brands that um, are then ranked uh, by our system in terms of purely the information that we've been able to receive. Then the big work starts because the ones that are more promising, uh, then we deep dive into the website, we make a quality assessment of the execution of that brand, which very often is a sign of the quality of the team, not always, but very often is. And so we kind of screen them down for promising um, and then we reach out to them and, um, you know, some of them have a long line of Silicon Valley funds, so it's difficult to catch their attention. Uh, some of them are more surprised because they do not see themselves as we see them. So we 
see their potential sometimes ahead of them, uh, which of course is, is very interesting. Uh, and uh, and then I have to say that you know this is the difficult part is to get in touch with these brands around the world. Uh, but once we get in touch, we have not had uh, so far an entrepreneur that told us, "Oh man, you know your concept is stupid." <laughs> you know, they do see that in CPG experience counts. They recognize when we speak that we understand structural needs and operational difficulties and the death trap of mistakes just you know better than than non um uh cpg's expert um and they like that we're permanent capital i mean permanent capital is a big deal uh you know we're not pushing them anywhere until they're ready for going themselves somewhere we back up founders and teams to their strategy and we help them to deliver it better as opposed then tell them you know you gotta exit in three years because my fund is about to run out or, or anything like that and so permanent capital expertise, they like it. So once we speak with them, we tend to have a pretty high success rate of, uh, of closing. And to answer your question, Notco is one of them because we got to, Matthias is the CEO, um, you know, through a combination of uh, signals, but they were very light because uh, Notco is in Chile. And at that time it was selling only, only in Chile, Mayo. So it was a, not Mayo, it was plant-based Mayo, company in Chile, which as you can imagine on the global scale of sentiment doesn't even record, right? Mm -hmm. uh, just a number of numerical, um, you know, weight. And, um, uh, but we had other, on the physical side, as I said, and on the network side and personal and, and, and so on. And so we kind of got to them and uh, Matthias had a choice of many uh, names that you would recognize to, they wanted to, you know, uh, fund. Uh, but we had a very good discussion about the fact that they are, you know, as since then they have launched not milk, not ice cream, not burger. So they were going into CPG cross category. They were effectively, the dream is to reinvent, um, you know, the concept of a food company today to make it a plant based, um, you know, perfectly deliciously tasting, um, you know, cross-category offering, so a little bit of the Nestle of the future, you know, the, the you know, whatever, you know, Dan and Kraft, you know, of the future. Absolutely. And um, and that dream uh, was so big and the uh, quality of the team was so good uh, and the enabling factors that gave them credibility, which is this AI engine, was uh, so unique um, that they had everything except the CPG expertise. And so it was a little bit of a match, you know, made in heaven because they brought all of the things that I just described. You know, we brought in capital with operation and, you know, there's been a very good journey. And I would anticipate as a journey that will continue to progress with more funding, more growth, more opportunities, um, you know, in the future. So the, you know, these signals and, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the outside looking in at their kind of their, their you know, their, their, digital assets i suppose um it all sounds like it's kind of um um i suppose digitally focused or just you know the perception of you know whoever's buying online does the does their kind of manufacturing capabilities come into play early on or is that just something that like given they've got this kind of 
everything right from the front end, I guess is the, the way I'm looking at it, that you can make the magic happen however you like in the back, you know, you know what I mean? Like, is it, um, yeah. how long, how long before you're, you know, checking out what the factory can capabilities are and, and as opposed to yeah, how they're presenting themselves, so, you know? So, so let me, let me answer you in, in two ways. One is, uh, on our observation and on market reading and all of that, it, it turns out that probably six, seven, you know, uh, uh, failure in the FMCG young companies, let's say early stage companies, is because of manufacturing experience of lack thereof. So it's super important. Um, you either don't know how to scale and then your working capital kills you. Um, or you compromise on the quality of your product in order to find scale because that ingredient is not ready available at scale or because the manufacturing capacity is not ready available or whatever. So you compromise on your quality by taking that ingredient out, uh, you know, or you partner on wrong contractual terms um, and so on and so forth. There are many. So it's super important. On the other side, uh, the world has changed dramatically in terms of lowering the barrier for entry, and that's why you know the big companies, uh, as you know, I'm on the board of, of, of uh, you know a couple you know very large companies, and I can see that the the barrier for entry has dramatically lowered, and so the new companies can have access to the right manufacturing, uh, you know, through TPMs or or um, you know install capacity that is unused. Um, so it's a matter of knowing how to do it rather than, um, not having or having the opportunities to do it. The opportunities out there, new companies can source their manufacturing, um, logistics, the whole supply chain can be outsourced, <clears throat> but it has to be outsourced a little bit like years ago, the merchandisers and the brand ambassadors were outsourced. You know, when Mac in uh, cosmetics created the brand, you know, they needed to train the individuals that were, you know, doing the makeup in the department stores or whatever that was in order to do it the Mac way. That understanding of the brand was essential to the creation of a brand. And now the understanding of the supply chain requirements, quality, standards, uh, you know, flexibilities and so on and so forth that brands wants to have needs to be equally clear to the TPM you're going to use. So it's about understanding that um, integration and, and brand alignment and, and doing it properly. Uh, from our perspective at The Craftery, we see four really fundamental pillars um, that these new brands needs to think very carefully of. And we have four who we call crafters that are uh, expert in each of them. And so one is brand creative and storytelling. Mm -hmm. If your creative content is not aligned with the story that is telling what that uh, content, why the content is, is relevant, you basically have very little uh, chance of cutting through. So that's brand creative and storytelling is one. The second is digital amplification. And this is quite important because of what you said, this is not digital as in e-commerce, this is digital as in creation of awareness, engagement, decision, matching of preferences. You know, we all live online, even if we don't buy online. So that life online is the opportunity for people to engage with brands, understand the benefit, and then amplify that story. And then you can end up in e-commerce or not. So e-commerce is 
a possible last chapter of this second pillar rather than you know um, the only reasons for being so digital amplification engagement to to commerce the third is um innovation um we see a lot of one trick ponies that you know an entrepreneur trips on a wonderful idea thinks that because he tripped on that idea then you know he has the magic touch and so he wants to go from that idea into something which is totally unrelated or unnecessarily you know synergistic with the first and so you end up diluting your brand because you innovate wrongly so we, we believe that there is a very strong strategic value of uh, building on each other's through innovation uh, on each other product through innovation and to do it right it's uh, amplifier and to do it wrong is uh, you know uh, basically a death trap for brands so uh, innovation strategy and then the last one is scale up uh, and we have expertise in scale up efficiently but scale up uh, per se because uh, of what i said before you can do it in many wrong ways um, and each of these four are equally important. You know, if you don't have a brand content or if you don't amplify digitally or if you do not innovate in a discipline, strategic way, or if you don't know how to scale up, um, you know, you, you won't get from 10 to 100. You might get from zero to 10, but not from 10 to 100. Um, and so manufacturing, to answer your question, is very important, uh, is one of the four pillars. It can be done, but it needs to be done uh, strategically and, and, and knowingly. And on the scale-up thing, I guess that there'd be, you know, another benefit from from your side would would be that um, the ability to you know foresee problems in different you know regions, I guess, based on you know certain ingredients or whatever, right? I mean, I've seen that myself with just some some, some seemingly trivial things that become the reason a you know a product can't launch in Australia or in the US, you know, is that so? I guess is that part of um, due diligence or is that part of oh, this is where we can add value and help cut through that red tape in you know in, in, in Argentina or whatever, right? Yeah, well, it's um, it, it, it's it's a little bit of both. I mean, in due diligence, we see that it's feasible and we don't invest if it is not feasible, and then if it is feasible but not done, that's where we add value. So one of the brands that um, you know we're associated with is called the Healist. The Healist is um, uh, a brand that has been created around the concept of CBD, um, and uh, you know you, you can you can see it on thehealist.com. Uh, it's for the moment uh, distributed in the United States. Um, it's a, it's it's the first I think you know that's clearly a, a biased view, but it is also an expert view. It's the first brand in the CBD space that actually I can call a brand because it has been designed with the right regulatory formulation, consumers' insights, understanding, and benefits-driven rather than formula or you know percentages or ingredients-driven. And it is not just CBD. There is lots of other you know good things that adds to the uh, to the experience so to your uh, example in creating this brand in supporting this brand we did all of that regulatory work of what's possible in argentina or in australia or whatever that is we saw the general sense of consumer preference and regulatory direction going into emerging direction um, and we then say okay then we can add value because we can create a team and uh, a brand 
that can leverage this um, wild west because for the moment CBD is it's, it's a wild west with lots of newly invented you know brand managers that never um, knew what brand meant uh, launching stuff which is difficult to call brands in the market uh, consumers are confused so we felt that there was the opportunity to kind of create the you know first uh, proper consumer driven brand in CBD and we did it and so that's kind of the um, the type of process that we that we follow absolutely and then and then is it you know on the, again on the scale up side of things is this um, you know is the appeal to be you know global with the products you're picking is the um, is it is it the fact that you can you know lean on you know some some friends from industry to help with the you know the distribution of this stuff and add value through through your networks um, obviously that that must be an advantage that you have yeah I would say that is um, so we so we we are basically Europe United States Latin America Australia um, we tend to not be Africa or Asia not for other, Russia not for other reasons but because our collective competences are not that competitive in those markets. So, you know, we wouldn't add as much value as we add in the markets that I that I mentioned before. Um, the network is an, is an important element uh, because, of course, you know, we, we know who to call to ask for, you know, questions or help in, in one, one area or the other. But I would say it's more the fact that we have done it. So, you know, if you have set up things in places, I mean, I've worked – in effectively, I lived in seven markets uh, and I worked in 55 because yeah. that was the scope of the job. So you kind of, you, you have seen things, um, you know, you, you can ask the right questions. Very often our role is not to do uh, anything pretty much other than asking the CEO founders, have you thought about this this way? And if we want to go that, that direction, that's how we could, you know, do it. And so it's it's more of a, it's more of a, a support framing and strategic guidance rather than, uh, you know, call this guy because I've worked with him in the past and he's a good guy. We can also go there and we clearly have a network of people also that is very important to to tap into for uh, talents whenever, you know, talents are needed and so on and so forth. But the, but the key thing is actually I would say is that collective um, know-how and experience. Yeah. And it sounds like you're, you're very much behind um... – um, you know the founder's vision here um, seems to be the premise premise of the of the fund really. You know, particularly if they got you know they're purpose driven that you you just want to be there to help amplify the good work they want to do in the world. Absolutely, um, I mean that 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 to me and to us at the Crafter is uh, um, is fundamental. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've looked at it, our website, thecraftery.io. Um, yeah, we stated really much up front. We're, we're here to back up those challengers, you know, entrepreneur and brands that want to make a dent in the world for the benefit of consumer, planet, or society. That's what we do. That's why we're here. The causes that we serve are first screen. So we do not invest in brands if they're not cost-driven in one of our five causes. The reasons why we chose those five is because those are causes that can be influenced by CPGs. You know, I'd love to influence interface dialogue, but frankly, you know, selling soaps cannot do much about that. So we chose causes that are relevant to the categories that we are investing in. 
and is our first screen for investment. And then, of course, the next is the quality of the team, the founders. The next is brand power, uh, defined as, um, you know, the sort of sets of values that I referred to before. And the last one is brand traction. So if we have a right cause, a great entrepreneur, a brand that has that potential to become a leader, to be a reference for those sets of values, to embody those sets of values, and some early stage traction that has been proven that the product delivers on all of the above, then, um, you know, we're open for business. Um, Ilio, just while I've got you there, mate, I've got to, I've got to ask this new one because I know it's a, you know, important, um, you know, part of your business and, um, and your whole mission here, but the, You've also gone B Corp, right? Yes, yes, we did, and and uh, very proudly so. Absolutely. So, so, what does that mean? Now, now all your numbers are there. Everything's transparent. Who you're dealing with? How, how deep does B Corp go? And what is it? You know, obviously, it's a you know perfect complement to to you know um, the companies you're investing in. But what does it mean to you? Um, so I think B Corp is, um, give you an example. I, I lived, as I said, in, in, in seven markets, uh, seven different countries. Um, and I tried to learn the language of that individual market in order to live my life, uh, participating to the, to the context and the society I was part of. And B Corp for, you know, the kind of, you know, gospel we preach is fundamental is basically walking, you know, the talk. So we speak with entrepreneurs that are purpose-driven. Uh, most, a lot of the entrepreneur refers to B Corp as their sort of common ground of understanding of the value that they hold, you know, high in, in, in their lives. And a lot of them are B Corp. And so for us to approach them and propose ourselves as partner to invest and not having put ourselves through the same standards, it felt a little bit um Equivocal, and so we decided that we wanted to use that same screen in order to have a conversation um, and to you know, portray our choice and value sets to be the same as as the companies that we want to partner with. So B Corp, we felt that it was the right um, signal. Uh, they're very good, they're very thorough. Uh, we had great interaction with the B Corp team. They basically have. Uh, you know, dug into our numbers, into our, you know, approach into what we do, how we do it for about, you know, seven, eight months. Um, we have uh, had to rewrite some of our articles of association because it was not as clearly stated as it should have been. So we did. The shareholders backed it up. We rewrote the articles to ensure that the ESG principles are uh, clearly stated and the company committed to their delivery. Um, yeah, we're just coming out now with the announcements that we're also B Corp. We're immensely proud also of the team uh, at the Craftery that has, um, you know, taken part and enabled and live every day those those principles. And, uh, and uh, you know, we're ready to walk the talk. Amazing. And and just, just lastly, you know, while I've got you, Ilya, uh, what's the market reaction been like? You know, what is... I'm sure there is it is it people knocking on your door and wanting to be you know part of this now and you're just kind of you know you know mind blown mind blown kind of stuff or what what's the what's the reaction being from the you know all your friends and 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 from the 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 community at large I suppose 
Um, I, I have to say, um, you know, very fulfilling, very, very rewarding. You know, like all ideas, you, you kind of, you believe in, you know, in them as you do it. And my co-founder uh, and I have believed in it, you know, from the beginning. But they kind of become true and even more so when others, um, you know, respond to it as enthusiastically as, as you do. And, uh, and I have to say the entrepreneurs, as they discovered, I mean, we're not even two years since we launched. So, you know, the first year was just about creating awareness. And then as awareness was created, as our first couple of investments were done, um, we really had an incredible response from the entrepreneur community. Uh, and um, from a personal perspective, there has not been one of my, you know, old or, or current colleagues uh, in the industry, outside the industry that, um, you know, didn't... Uh, you know, recognize how relevant it is in these times, at these days, um, to have a purpose-driven first um, screening from an investment house. And then we are the first uh, B Corp, by the way, to be um, exclusively CPG purpose first, um, you know, investment house. So it's, um, yeah, it, it, it's very exciting. Right. I love it. I love it. I want to Thank you very much for your time tonight, Ilio. Um, I hope um, we get some good entrepreneurs coming your way and um, look forward to meeting you sometime in the future. Same here. Thank you very much, Chris. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to date with all things Startup Grind, visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at an event in a city near you. Until next time, chase the vision and keep hustling. Keep hustling.